Welcome and thank you for joining us today for the Family Perspectives podcast. This podcast is created by students and faculty in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. We believe that relationships are central to living fulfilling lives, and like any skill or expertise, relationship intelligence can and should be improved and developed. In this podcast, we'll turn to the experts for knowledge and tips to help you improve your relationship IQ. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Misha. And we're your hosts on today's episode. As an introduction to the Family Perspectives podcast, we want to give you an overview of what's going on in the BYU School of Family Life by introducing you to a few of our faculty and addressing some of the prevalent topics and valuable research regarding marriage and family today. Each month, we will dive deeper into specific family and child development topics and learn how we can apply those in our families and relationships. We will discuss topics ranging from dating to parenting and every relationship in between. On the show today, we're going to ask five of our SFL professors about the most significant challenges that we are seeing within relationships in the U.S. and what we can personally do to improve our relationship IQ. Each professor in SFL has their own distinct research and teaching interests, and each has a valuable insight to contribute coming from diverse educational and family backgrounds. The first professor we will be speaking with is Dr. Alan Hawkins, a professor at BYU and a member of the Utah Marriage Commission. He is an expert scholar on marriage education in the United States and emphasizes the importance of family life education in society. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hawkins. We're excited to talk with you. Thanks. All right, Dr. Hawkins, we're wondering if you could talk to us about the work you've done on the importance of relationship education. Yeah, for the last 25 years, I've been really focusing on the effectiveness of marriage and relationship education for romantic relationships. And one of the things that I think it's important to realize is we're not kind of naturally gifted at romantic relationships. Uh, It's not a particularly natural skill. I think maybe sometimes we feel that way because we're embedded in relationships all our lives. And some people get a really good education from their young years, from parents and siblings and friends, you know, of how to do relationships. But when we go romantic in a relationship, we up the game. There are higher expectations. There are more demands. Our emotions become more involved and relationships become more challenging. And maybe there are some people who are better and some people are worse, but we all need to up our game in terms of our romantic relationship skills. It's a learned skill. And so what relationship education and marriage education tries to do is take all that good research out there about how we have good relationships and put that into real nuggets uh, for people and help them practice skills and you know develop what you might even call cognitive skills, ways of thinking that support building healthy and strong relationships. So that's where I've tried to be, to try and understand, okay, that sounds great. I think we could all agree pretty much that we need that. Are we doing okay? How are we doing as far as being able to teach and learn good romantic relationship skills? I like that. I think everything you're saying makes a lot of sense. Just like we learn anything else in school, we have to acquire skills. And it makes sense that relationships are a skill that need to be worked on and and acquired. And I think there are general skills that we need. But I also think that there are sometimes more specific skills. Maybe we're struggling with a particular problem. 
maybe we really just aren't very good communicators. You know, we love each other and we treat each other well, and that, but we really struggle when we try to solve problems together. Hey, we, there's a lot of research on that. And we've actually developed a lot of interventions that can help with that. So sometimes we need help with some specific things. Or maybe this dividing up housework thing is just throwing us for a loop. Maybe we come from very different family backgrounds or whatever, or cultural backgrounds. Okay, maybe we should go get some specific help for an issue like that. And so, there, yeah, again, more general kinds of skills, but also we run into very specific things. And then, of course, life changes. Uh, we go through significant transitions, maybe the most significant one being the transition to parenthood. That can throw a wrench into a lot of things. And so we have to relearn a lot of things. And there's a lot of new things that we have. How do, how do we still make time for each other when we're consumed by this helpless infant that needs constant attention. And so you confront new challenges. So there's more need for further education, what we might call continuing education. And I think it all goes to uh, that point that, that this is a learned skill and we have to work at it, not just assume that it's something that we can, or in some cases, maybe can't do. You brought up the point of continuing education. So how do you feel like people can incorporate relationship education into their daily lives? Yeah, and I do think it's important to be more regular and more daily. I think, um, you know, attending a, a six-week program where you learn how to communicate more effectively and solve problems and maybe align our expectations more, you know, a more intensive dose of it at times can be, I think, really fruitful. But, and I call this the Sunday school model. And that is, maybe you decide to go to church for two months and really knuckle down and listen to those lessons and really try and incorporate them. And then, fine, I, I don't need to darken the door of a chapel anymore. You know, we think about it, that's ridiculous. That's not the way life works. The, you know, becoming our best selves and our most spiritual selves is this constant process. And I really do think that romantic relationships are really quite similar. We need to put in regular energy into the system. You know, if we don't, things just tend to fall apart. That's what I call the second law of marital thermodynamics. If you don't put energy into the system, what happens? The system just kind of falls apart. So you want to keep the system going. It takes input that way, but you're always confronting new challenges. So that regular kind of a thing. Now, again, I don't think it has to be a six-week, 12-hour intensive program. What about your phone app? I've got one on my phone. I must confess I don't use it very often, <laughs> but my wife and I have one on our phone. And, you know, it tells you to do something every day uh, to strengthen, you know, here's what you could do uh, to strengthen your relationship. Something like that, I think is great. Or, you run into a little bit of a problem. And so you go to the website, you go to the Utah Marriage Commission's website where they have lots of resources. I wonder if they've got something to help us with how we can better divide childcare and housework. And so you go get a little help there. So it's that ongoing, continuing education. And by the way, if you want to send strong signals about how committed I am to you and how important this relationship is to me, this is one of the most powerful ways we can send it, to say, I want to learn. I want to get better at this. 
that means I'm really still invested. I'm not taking it for granted. I can do better and let's work at it. That is great information and advice. For our last question, we just like to know, in this podcast, our mission statement is to try and improve our relationship IQ. So in summary from what you've shared with us today, what do you think is the main thing that we can do to improve our relationship IQ? Is just keep going at it on a regular basis for our romantic relationships. Our grandparents and great-grandparents maybe didn't have these resources and you know, they did okay, but maybe they could have done better. And the world is so much more complex. And the expectations for our marriages are so much higher now that I really think it has to be this ongoing effort. And reminding ourselves that when we blow it, when we fail, uh, when we make a mistake in our relationship, well, it's because we have to keep learning. We're not as smart as we think we are. In that sense, maybe improving our relationship IQ isn't quite the right way to think about it because we think about IQ, intelligence quotient, as a kind of a more fixed thing, I think, although it probably isn't. But it's not fixed. This is, this is something that we just keep investing in so that we keep learning, so that we keep getting better at it. And I think that's the message that's most important to share. Just keep going, keep learning. Keep learning. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hawkins. You're welcome. Next, we're talking with Dr. Brian Willoughby. He is a professor and Wheatley Institute fellow who specializes in couple and family formation. He researches how adults move towards long-term committed relationships and marriage. Thanks for talking with us today, Dr. Willoughby. Good to be here. Thank you. All right, Dr. Willoughby, would you share with us what you have found from your research on dating and courting? Yeah, so I've spent a lot of, typically the last five years of my career, really focused in on young adults who are dating and moving towards marriage and, and trying to understand some of the larger trends that we've seen. So we've seen a lot of data that suggests that marriage isn't as important as it used to be. Marriage rates are going down. The average age of marriage is going up. And even beyond just marriage, we're seeing less dating behavior than we've seen in previous generations. And so a lot of my research has been to try to figure out what is happening with young adults. Why is there a disengagement from dating? What are some of the unique anxieties and stresses that young adults have had around the dating process? And I've really tried to, to understand why some of those trends are happening. That's wonderful. I think this information will be helpful for a lot of people, especially those that are in school going to BYU. Within the realm of dating, what do you think one of the main challenges that young adults are facing today? I think when it comes to dating, one of the biggest changes we've seen from previous generations is, is the dating process used to be very what we call scripted, which means everyone kind of did the same thing. So if you think about a lot of our, your parents and grandparents, they had this very kind of cultural normative script of here's what you do, here's how you date. Here's the timing of everything. And it led to a lot of really clear expectations about how this is supposed to go. But today, young adults don't have those expectations anymore. We live in a culture where there's a lot more choice and freedom for young adults to decide when they're going to date, when they're going to marry, how they're going to date. And because there's so much choice, not just about dating, but about almost everything in life now, you know, all the way from what you're watching on TV or on Netflix, there's so much choice available that that leads to a lot more anxiety a lot more uncertainty about, am I making the right choices? Am I doing this the right way? And young adults feel that about everything. And so one of the main 
findings that's come through in my research about why so many young adults are disengaging a little bit from the dating process is they feel so much stress in their life generally. They're stressed about school, they're stressed about work, they're stressed about making all these other decisions. They recognize that relationships are hard and will create stress in their life. And they're, they're saying, I don't need more stress right now. I don't want more stress in my life. I don't want another person that I'm trying to navigate with and navigate my life with. And so they're delaying those decisions until later and telling themselves, well, once I'm done with school or once I've established myself in my career, once I've traveled, once I have these checklist things done, then I'll move into relationships. And again, not just marriage. It used to be just a marriage delay. Now it's just a dating delay. We've seen almost a 20 to 40% drop just in high school dating in the last 10 years because of a lot of similar things. So I think that's the biggest challenge young adults have is, is not that they don't care about relationships, not because all of a sudden they don't care about getting married, but they sense so much anxiety in their lives generally and then specifically around dating that it, it dating feels like just too much for them right now. So what are some of the issues that come from delayed dating in the long term? Yeah, so so one of the concerns relationship scholars like I have about this delay process is that because it's not just a delay in marriage, but generally a delay in disengagement from relationships, is that we know that adolescent dating, but particularly young adult dating, is really important in terms of learning good relationship skills, right? As you go into these dating relationships and as you form relationships and go on second dates and break up, you're learning really important skills about how to communicate with another person, how to compromise with another person, how to negotiate things in your life. These are all really pivotal skills when it comes to a long-term committed marriage. They're all under this umbrella of what scholars call interpersonal competence, which is kind of how, how good are you at being in a relationship? And like any other skill in life, you learn from practice. And so as people have disengaged, particularly teenagers and young adults have disengaged from the dating process, as they delay that, they're losing a lot of opportunities to get that really important experience. And we're seeing more and more than as they eventually do try to form committed relationships and marriages, that sometimes there's not that interpersonal skill set that's available. I don't know how to navigate with another person because I've never had to do that. So I've, I've only been the single person that's you know, figured out my daily schedule and figured out my life trajectory on my own. I've never had to negotiate that with another person. And so that specific skill set, at least there's some early indications that there might be some deficiency in that, at least on average, because we haven't engaged enough in the dating process to learn those important skills that I'll need eventually in my marriage. That would make a big difference. <laughs> um, if you were to give us just one tip from all this information that you shared today on how we can improve our relationship IQ in terms of dating, what would it be? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is to be really intentional in the dating process that regardless of where you feel like marriage or relationships might fit in your life, whether it's now, whether it's in the future, is to just like everything else in your life, whether you're trying to get more physically fit, whether you're trying to further your education, is to think about your relationship, as you put it, as an IQ, something I need to work on and something I need to build skills on. And that takes energy, time and focus. And so I always tell young adults when I do presentations on dating is to be really intentional. Think about what am I doing this week that's helping me in my dating life? Am I putting myself in places where I can meet new people? Am I trying to, to find ways to, to get on dates? Maybe it's asking someone on a second date. Maybe it's saying yes to a second date. Am I furthering these relationships and putting myself in opportunities to learn these skills? And that will oftentimes come with sacrifice, right? I might 
not quite get to that third draft of that paper. I might not quite get to all the exercise things I wanted to this week or that movie I wanted to get to. But if you really value relationships and marriage in your life at some point, then making sure you're carving out some time every week to work on that part of your life is really important. We have learned so much from you today. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Our next guest is Dr. Sarah Coyne, Associate Director of the School of Family Life here at BYU and a leading researcher and expert on how media affects children. It's good to have you, Dr. Coyne. Thank you so much for having me. We're wondering if you could share with us a little about your research on how parenting has become different in this modern age. I think parenting is more complicated now than it ever has been. I study the impact of media on children and families. Cell phones and tablets and the internet are all changed the way we parent dramatically from decades ago. And a couple of things, right, to think about. Parents have to navigate how much technology they want, say, in their, in their family, how much they think it's okay for their kids to use, what kind of technology they think their kids are okay to watch, what type of content, and then how much they want to be a part of that. So, like, do they want to be on Snapchat or Marco Polo or TikTok or fill in the blank with their kids? And what does that look like when maybe they didn't grow up with social media at all? So it's kind of this brave new world where we're trying to figure out. So what are some recommendations that you would give to parents who are navigating the new technologies in the world and just the prevalence of social media? So first of all, don't be afraid of media. I, I've talked to a lot of parents that are just, I'm so afraid. I, I put my head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. Or then I talk to other parents that say, I'm so overwhelmed that I just let them do whatever they want. Right. So like, where's our middle balance here? I get asked all the time, what, what age should I get my kid a cell phone? Right. And I always say, it depends on the kid, like know your child and know what they're ready for. So as an example, um, with one of my children, we waited a little bit later and he started out with like a very, very dumb phone because his self-regulation was really poor and he wasn't quite ready with another child. She was far more advanced, far more responsible, just kind of ready earlier. So she also started with a dumb phone, but moved on to a smartphone uh, much more quickly. The other thing is to just keep an ongoing conversation where you actually care what your kids think about their own technology use and where you can talk about appropriate boundaries and ways to be a healthy media user and so on. Thank you so much. So our motto throughout our podcast is what can we do to improve our relationship IQ? So in the relationship between a parent and a child, what do you think is one thing that parents can do to increase their relationship IQ and maintain that positive relationship with their children, even with the prevalence of social media? That's a great question. I feel like a lot of people think that media decreases your relationship IQ, right? And is a barrier, right, for relationships. So my advice would just be to use technology where you can to cement the relationship. And you do this by caring about what your kid cares about. So for example, right, my daughter loves TikTok. Like I don't love TikTok, but I'm on it. And she shares me fun videos and I watch her videos and I comment on them. And we just have a conversation about that. And that's nice, right? My son loves anime. I like, I don't get it. I just don't get it at all. But like that is his thing. And so we use technology to kind of bridge a gap and so I sit and watch anime with him. We'll talk about anime together. And within 
we can use it to talk about like big, dark themes or big things he's dealing with that he'll then talk to me because I've said, I like what you like. I'm willing to sit with your technology and, and what you like. And then he'll like open up in a, in a different way. So that's my recommendation. I love what you said about how we can use technology to strengthen our relationships. Thank you, Dr. Quinn, for taking time to share with us today. And we will talk to you later. Thank you for having me. The next professor we will be talking with is Dr. Ashley LeBaron Black. Dr. Ashley LeBaron Black is an assistant professor in the School of Family Life. Her research focus is family finance, including couple finance and financial socialization. Ashley is an associate editor for the Journal of Family and Economic Issues. She is chair of the Family Financial Wellbeing Focus Group for the National Council on Family Relations and is a co-chair of the Finances Topic Network for the Society for the Study of Emerging Adult. Thanks for being with us today, Ashley. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We know that managing finances can be a tricky part of marriage and family life. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role that money and management plays in our relationships? For sure. So research has found that once you make two times the poverty level in income, then money is no longer correlated with personal individual happiness. So basically, once we have sufficient for our needs, then it matters a lot more what we do with our money than how much money we have. Uh, so, for example, it's much more important that we spend money in a way that aligns with what we truly value, which usually means spending money on our relationships and strengthening those, giving money away and being generous increases our happiness, experiences instead of things, stuff like that. Uh, and we've found that mirrored also in couple finance research, where after a certain point, income really isn't related to couple relationship outcomes. And so truly in our individual lives and in our relationships, money does not buy happiness. I think that's really helpful to hear that that money isn't going to increase our happiness as long as we have enough for it. Can you share with us some of the difficulties that couples may come across in the financial area of their relationship? Yes. So although income isn't super tied to relationship outcomes, how much debt you have is. Debt is not good for relationships. And same with, you know, other financial behaviors, having those healthy, responsible behaviors like avoiding debt, like saving, budgeting, those are good for relationships and the opposite of them are bad because they create stress, financial stress in our lives, which can take a toll on relationships. Other things that are hard on relationships are financial deception, which is actually pretty common for partners to go behind each other's backs with money that erodes trust and is hard on relationships. And then also, in addition to behaviors, some financial attitudes are really bad for relationships. For example, people who have high levels of materialism tend to be less satisfied in their relationship. And as we've kind of dug into why that is, we found that people who are highly materialistic tend to not think that their marriage is super important in their life. It's almost like a competing values. So if you value things over the relationships in your life, then obviously you're not going to be as happy in that relationship and it's not going to go as well. And so, yeah, I would just encourage people to 
be responsible with your money. And then also don't care all too much, you know, about money. Make sure that what you really value at the core of you is at the forefront of your thoughts and your actions. I like that. Just being more focused on your relationship and the things that you value will increase your happiness more than having more things. One note too about financial stress, although financial stress, usually we see that being hard on relationships for obvious reasons. There's actually uh, some fun findings that I think are really hopeful because financial stress is inevitable for a lot of us. So from a family stress theory point of view, we find that bone adaptation is actually possible under certain circumstances. So in that way, stressors can actually act as a catalyst for positive relational growth, especially when couples like couple management behaviors where they're, they're kind to each other, they look out for each other, and they do this kind of daily maintenance behaviors. And then also if they have a financial support network that they can rely on in those hard times, then yeah, for, for those couples, financial stressors can actually help them kind of increase their sense of working together as a team to tackle these challenges. And so we actually see increased commitment and good relationship outcomes for those couples. So financial stress doesn't have to mean that your relationship suffers. Wow. That's super interesting. I wish we had 45 more minutes so we could dive into all of these topics. So we'll have to have you back again. We just want to ask one more question to finish up. If you were to give us one tip on how we can improve our relationship IQ and manage family finances more successfully, what would it be? I would encourage people to approach their finances as equal partners. We found in couple finance research that the findings really make a case for equal partnership, that couples who manage their money together as a team and who have equal power in financial decision-making, that those couples have uh, better relationship outcomes because they both partners then feel more empowered. When people are equal partners, their relationship goes better. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and expertise, Ashley. We hope to chat with you again soon. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Dr. Shalom Levitt. Dr. Levitt is a professor and researcher of healthy sexuality. She graduated from BYU with a law degree and got her PhD in human development and family studies at Penn State. She researches healthy sexuality and the role of mindfulness in relational and sexual satisfaction. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. We're wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about your research on healthy sexuality and what that encompasses. So I research how sex benefits committed relationships, and I also look at how being mindful during your sexual experiences may impact the kind of sexual experience you have, not only the satisfaction and connection you feel, but also the functioning. So some of the most recent research we've done is looking at how men and women function during sexual experiences? What's their arousal patterns? How are they experiencing orgasm consistency? And what sorts of things contribute to that physical functioning, as well as the emotional connection and their relational satisfaction that they're experiencing? That's wonderful. Could you talk to us a little bit about what mindfulness is and how we can be mindful in our daily lives? Yeah, that's a great question. Mindfulness is really pretty simple. You don't have to have fancy clothes or go to a gym to practice mindfulness. You just intentionally 
slow down your process of how you are thinking and how you're connecting with your body, right? So most people will say that the one thing we can always count on, we can always anchor our connection is to our breath, right? So we pay attention to our breath and kind of let everything else fall away. So I think a pretty well-accepted definition of mindfulness is being aware of the present moment in a particular quality. And that means without judgment and with maybe even a little curiosity, like, why do I feel this way? Why do these thoughts keep popping into my mind? And yet being gentle with yourself as you think about those things. We can see how that would be very important in our sexual relationships. Yeah, for sure. Being able to slow down and really connect with your partner during this arousal process is actually pretty tough for most people because we know that during arousal, people have heightened anxiety, especially about their body and are they doing things just right and is their performance what it needs to be or is their partner satisfied, right? We have all sorts of things that start kind of making noise in our head. And then because of that noise, we miss the point of the connection during the sexual experience. So you talked a little bit about that anxiety. We're wondering if there is a main challenge that you have noticed from your research that couples are experiencing within their sexuality, something that they could improve to have better sexuality. Yeah, you know, I think not only just within our culture, but within many cultures. I mean, I've taught all over the world, and I can't think of a group of people that I have taught that isn't struggling with the same thing. And that is that sex is just a little bit taboo, but we feel a little awkward and uncomfortable talking about the fact that we are sexual beings and that that's actually a beautiful part of who we are. And it's a powerful part of our relationships. And so if we could start to maybe create some space in our relationship where we can learn to talk about sex in a comfortable, vulnerable way, and that would tend to really help improve people's relationships. All right. So our motto has been improve your relationship IQ for this podcast. So if we could summarize one thing that we can do to improve our relationship IQ in the area of sexuality, what would that be? Great question. I would say we need to recognize that differences or conflict that we have in our relationship is actually an opportunity for us to create more intimacy with each other, learn more about yourself and your partner and how these differences are actually a beautiful part of who you are and can create even greater connection between the two of you. Thank you so much, Dr. Levitt. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. We've learned a lot from these excellent researchers and professors on how we can improve our relationship IQ in various areas of family life and human development. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes, taking a deeper dive into these topics and more. If you have any questions, please email us at byusflpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your listening platform to catch future episodes. Until next time.